to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. I hope you're doing well and having a great day. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as get to meet some of the key personalities working tirelessly behind the scenes to keep sport running. I'm delighted to welcome our special guest today, Andrew L. Lee, who is off-counsel and a litigation and business attorney with the US law firm Foley and Lardner in the New York office, where he's a member of the firm's business litigation and dispute resolution practice, and he's a special advisor to the sports and entertainment industry team. And he's got a fascinating career. We had a call last week, and and you'll find out during the podcast about it. He's had over 20 years experience working both sports, media, and entertainment, both in in-house and as outside advisor, with an emphasis on counseling senior level executives in high profile companies. He began his career working at a prestigious New York City law firm. He subsequently served as general counsel for the National Football League's New York Jets, as well as the New York New York Jets Super Bowl host committee. He has worked with uh, an illustrious array of clients, including the New York Jets, obviously, the uh, United States Rowing Association, the Brooklyn Nets, the Barclays Center, Miami Dolphins, RSC Ventures, Relevant Sport, just to name but a few. Andy, um, we were going to attach your profile below, but it's probably, uh, we could go on for about 10 minutes, I think, going through the, <laughs> some of the key highlights from your career. You know, there's the, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast was you moved around, I think it was about 10 years ago, you made this move from going from you know, being in a general counsel position, working in-house, which is normally kind of a dream role to uh, for a lot of particularly aspiring sports lawyers, but obviously a lot of lawyers working in the sports sector. You kind of had that gig, you're in a senior position. Um, what motivated you to move then and how did you even get into that position in the first place? I was just fascinated because, you know, as far as I'm seeing it, you're about 10 years, um, let's say, ahead of the trend of this move now with, you know, many of the big firms in the US hiring or rehiring, I should say, general counsels or former general counsels from sport. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, it, it is. It is an interesting trend to to notice and um it's part of you know that that trend yes i kind of did it 10 years ago but it's also kind of what led me to where i am now at foley and lardner which is a place that i think has actually been on the leading edge of that trend um even because there's there's a whole group of us who fit that that profile here particularly in the sports and entertainment group um but to to answer your question uh Yes, I started out at a big, a big New York City firm, which had an emphasis in sports, in, in a strong sports practice, uh, and that led me to make some of the the connections uh, with with the Jets and with some other uh, sports properties. Uh, so I was there uh, probably about seven years or so. I, I I always get the numbers mixed up because I did a, a federal clerkship after law school, and then I went back to that firm where I was a summer associate. Um, and, you know, at some point, and, and it happens a lot, right? In, in the law world, um, a, lot, a lot of people are obviously interested in sports law, but it means, it can mean many different things, right? There's so many different areas of law that touch on the world of sport, um, uh, both on the field and off the field. Uh, and, and more so, I mean, there's actually more variety on, on the off the field issues, which is where a lot of the, the business and the money um, uh, flows. So there came a time for me uh, 
at, at the firm where the, the Jets were working on establishing a new stadium in Manhattan. Uh, and they didn't have uh, an in-house counsel at the time. So they, you know, they needed, they needed someone to help them with that project uh, just to manage all the other lawyers that they were using. Uh, and also because there was there, they anticipated there would be, there would be a fair amount of litigation involved in that process, which there was. So they needed someone with that experience. Uh, and I had gotten to know them through my work at the firm. Uh, so I actually wound up starting out there on kind of a, a loaner basis, a call called a secondment, at least here in the yeah. U.S. I'm not sure. Yeah. So it's the same in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. I was seconded uh, over to the Jets for a period to manage that that process, which which I did. And you know, I, I always like to point out that from a you know from a litigation perspective, there were probably you know I don't know a dozen or fifteen different lawsuits, and we won all of those. <laughs> that wasn't the reason they, the Jets didn't get the stadium in New York. That had more to do with politics uh, and funding than anything else. Uh, but at the end of that period. Uh, you know, the team asked me to stay on and to to be the general counsel because what I had been doing at the time was basically, you know, working with the top level management team, the president and the and the owner and the owner's offices, and really just advising them on all aspects of that that whole process. And then also other business issues that were coming up as it was as things were happening. And I think they just realized, well, there is some, you know, some sense to having a legal department here in-house. And it's it was interesting because the world of sports has evolved so much, even just since then, right? That was, I mean, I guess that started in 2005, right? So we're talking about less than 20 years ago. And this is the New York Jets, right? A very high profile brand. But um, up until the time, till shortly before that time, you know, it was not a huge organization. Um, which is would is probably a little surprising to most people, which is part of why they didn't have uh, a legal department. And um, basically, when Ro- Woody Johnson, Robert Wood Johnson, bought the team a few years prior to that, um, and you know the, the firm I was with was representing him at the time, uh, it was owned prior to that by Leon Hess and the Hess family, and it was kind of run as much more of a kind of almost like a mom and pop you know organization. It, it, in, in, in the good sense, right? It was not huge. Um, they didn't have their own stadium at the time. So there was a whole nother level of the sports business that wasn't involved. They were renting, you know, the stadium, sharing it with the Giants. Um, but as the ownership changed and the plan became more sophisticated and we started thinking about things like a stadium and everything that goes with that, um, the organization got more sophisticated. And at the same time, the industry started growing. Um, you had a lot of things happening with with new facility development, huge naming rights deals, things like personal seat licenses, uh, player salaries started exploding. And, and to the point also where coaches all of a sudden, not maybe not all of a sudden, but you started seeing more coaches making, you know, really big, you know, numbers and not just at the top levels. Right. So seven figures you know, not even not only at the head coach level and and even in college sports. So it all, the industry was growing and getting more sophisticated. So the organization started growing and getting more sophisticated. So there was a need. And so the timing was right for that for me. So, I, you know, I stayed on with the Jets as their general counsel. And so I can ask you something. Andy. Sure. Uh, did you I want to get into your mindset about then when you were seconded over there, obviously you enjoying it. But did you 
did you get a sense that they might be wanting you to go full time or did you just go there and think you know what I'm here to do a job I'm gonna basically do the best job I can as you would do if you were seconded to any other client or did you have a a greater sense that you could be more impactful there than maybe other other organizations well I I had not been seconded before right so I didn't I didn't have any any point of reference but what I will say is uh You know, the the firm I was at, it was interesting. I guess I was probably a seventh year associate or something like that. I, you know, I was one of the more senior associates in the litigation department. Um, and uh, I remember going in for my my review, right, with a group of high level, you know, three high level partners. And I had a whole speech, you know, that I was going to that I was going to give them about how, you know, look, I, you know, I liked I liked the place I was at. I liked the firm. I liked the people. I liked my mentors there. Um, and, but I, my, ex, my expectation was not to be, and I didn't think this was going to be the case, but not to be one of these perennial sort of senior associate types who just is like, yeah, you know, cause some of these firms, they have people who have been there for 12, 13 years and they're still like a senior, an associate. Right. Um, so I had a whole speech planned out and, and instead they, you know, the first thing they told me was, look, we, you know, you know, we have we have some news that the Jets would like you to come and work with them in house. Um, so it was a real curveball that I wasn't expecting in this meeting. And they went to a lot of uh, effort to make to make me understand that this was not the firm saying, hey, you know, like it was not they were not trying to push me out the door at all. They were like, look, this is a this is a big, important client. The client is already thinking about and talking about, you know, bringing someone in house for all of the reasons that I mentioned before. And to be honest, in, in that situation, so this is like the business of law perspective, right? This was all, this was a protective move as well, right? Because, the, you know, the client the client was hiring other people. There's other vice presidents coming in. They all have contacts, and you know, they I'm sure they didn't they didn't want to take the chance that the client might hire someone from another firm because then that lawyer has his, you know his or her own relationships, and that could change the whole dynamic. So. Um, that was kind of the the basis for that of how it was presented to me. And it was very much like, look, then, you know, you'll, you'll come back here. And, you know, in my mind, I knew everything was going to go well and they would like me. At least that's my level of confidence. That's what I believed. Right. So so the idea being, you know, come back and everything's, you know, great. And 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 you'll have done, you know, real solid for the firm. Uh, so. That's kind of the context. And of course, I, I went there and that is kind of how it went. Everything was great. I, I really liked the people at the at the organization, which was important to me. Um, and they needed me or, you know, someone like me and, you know, wanted me to stay. So uh, that was yes, I did. I I mean, I didn't necessarily know as we were going through it was about six, you know, six months. I didn't know. Oh, you know, this is this is great. They're going to want me to they're going to want me to stay. What I did know is I had formed relationships that were going to last and be valuable and, and enduring either way, whether I went back to the firm or, or if they asked me to stay, right? Because I was pretty deep in the organization and they were relying on me for things that, and in ways that they wouldn't necessarily rely on other people. And we had developed personal relationships as well. And so, so that's, that, that's such a great insight, and thank you for for detailing that because I do think it's really interesting, and you know, just to just to understand how organisations evolve. As much as it is from from an individual career perspective, it's also I love the fact that it's kind of like a timestamp of of an organisation evolving and developing, as you said, 
in the midst of market changes, uh, particularly as you're saying we were an influx of money. How did your position then evolve once you made the decision to join the organization? Uh, well, it evolved um, in, in several different ways, so, you know, subject matter wise, right? It was, um, it, it, it was just a good fit for me because although at the firm I had been mostly, I had been a litigator, um, you know, by training, but as time went on, I was become, I was involved in transactions and deals as well. Um, once I got into the jets, it was, it was very general, right? We had, we not only had the stadium issues, which by that point had shifted to uh, the joint venture with the Giants and building a new stadium in New Jersey, as opposed to the, the Manhattan Project. Um, the organization didn't have a human resources depart department. So like, like many smaller organizations, they sort of just left that to the finance group or accounting because they thought of human resources as payroll. Uh, but they pretty quickly realized, you know, it's it's much more than that. And that so that sort of shifted over to me. And um, it became apparent to me as part of establishing the role. OK, we're going to need a human resources department. So we did a whole audit, a human resources audit of what the needs are of the organization. And the result of that was we hired uh, a human. I, I hired a human resources director. The other thing that was going on at the time was the organization was moving. Right. We knew. We're going to be building a new stadium in New Jersey. Part of that uh, deal with the state of New Jersey, um, well, back up. We also, the team, the, the the football operations headquarters had been out on Long Island at Hofstra University for a long time. Again, it wasn't, the team didn't own the facility. It was shared with the university. You know, it was not up to the standards of, of like a, a cutting edge current um, training facility. So we were planning to establish a new facility as well. So that involved moving the team to New Jersey, where they currently are in Florham Park. So that was a big human resources process as well, because if you think about it, you're moving a whole company. Our corporate headquarters were in Manhattan. Our football headquarters were on Long Island. We're moving everybody, including the players and their families and the coaches and their families to New Jersey because it's not really commutable from Long Island to New, to New Jersey, especially to central New Jersey. So all of that was happening as well as developing the joint venture with the Giants and doing everything that was involved in getting the stadium, you know, uh, the stadium deal done. So a lot of deal work, a lot of transactions. Um, and I very quickly got into the employment side of it as well, you know, trying to make sure that all of our personnel issues were up to line. So. Um, you know, I had, I had litigation, which I'd been doing for a long time and still managing. Um, I had all of the deals involved in, in the stadium project, which was not only the deal with the Giants, it was not only all of the government issues. Um, there were a lot of tax issues. There, was, there were real estate leases that had to be done both at the stadium and the training facility. There were re non-relocation agreements to make sure that the team, if the state was going to make the commitments it was making, um, that the team would stay. There were issues relating to the financing of the stadium. It was a $1.6 billion stadium between the two teams. So there were bond issuances. And and then we had to think about selling the the inventory, right? The, so, the, so can I ask you something? How did you, <laughs> bear in mind you were going in with a blank slate and there was a lot like, you know, because that's not, that's not the half of it by the sounds of things. How did you uh, go about project managing that? Yeah, yeah, it was. There, there were a lot of moving of moving parts, um, but 
I mean, to answer the question, I think the main point is that I was part of the, the management team. Uh, so there were there was the president and then there were four of us, the, the, the general manager and myself and two other two other sort of senior vice presidents. Uh, for the most part, there were one or two other people in different departments, but we all met regularly. Right. And we were all handling different aspects of all of those projects. Right. So we kind of help, you know, manage each other. And so it was, it was very much of a team effort. And then I had, you know, on the relocation side, I had a, like I said, I had a, I had a director that I hired for human resources. We brought in a relocation company on certain of the legal stuff. Uh, I wasn't doing all of this work myself. Right. Um, there were other, you know, on the financing, we had different law firms involved um, that I was coordinating with and managing and, and, you know, I had a zoning lawyer in New Jersey working with me on the on the training facility stuff. Um, so there were different levels of my personal, you know, pen to paper versus managing other people. Um, I had another lawyer working for me at the time um, who actually stayed there, who now happens to be the president of the team. <laughs> so, you know, he's got an interesting trajectory as well. Um, and I mean, my own personal managing, I mean, I'm trying to think. You know, we started having, I remember we had Blackberries back then, right? It was starting that. And um, yeah, at the time I was kind of a um, whiteboard sort of organization, you know, kind of guy, a to-do list. But, but um, really the core you're talking about, both what I'm picking up from this though, is that you had this really small, because I do think there's a sort of optimal number with these type of teams. You know, I think that six to eight is it or something like that in terms of lines of command that are good. So you had this core team and there's mainly that meeting up regularly, keeping everyone updated. It must've been very exciting at the time. It was. It was. Yeah. And we, you know, we had regular, we had regular meetings. I don't remember what day of the week, but we'd start out early in the morning and everyone would bring everyone up to speed on what's going on with everyone else. And we also had sort of reporting where at the end of each week, we would let everyone know what was going on. So there was, there was a lot of, of constant information flow. And I think that's, that's important. So that helped a lot. And, and so then, so, and then for how did your, so, so it sounds like there was this crazy period with all these different things going on. Then no doubt things, well, did they start to settle down? And I'm really curious about how, why you decided to 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 leave. Make change, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not sure things ever really settled down, but, you know, we did, we did, you know, we did reach a point, and I guess I was there for about five years um, or five seasons and, and parts thereof, but um the you know we reached the point where the stadium deal was was basically done uh, and was being constructed and we had completed the training facility and the relocation and had opened that facility and I actually worked there you know for a couple of months that was in New Jersey so then I had you know a choice to make it was like central New Jersey so it wasn't really to my mind not a, a good commute and I had not really been a commuter before right because I lived in the city and worked in the city for the most part so I had, I had that issue to deal with which was a family issue as well right do I want to move my family at this time and we thought and and do I want to move my family to New Jersey and we thought a lot about that and we're considering it and looked around um, we opened up the training facility so that was a big sort of accomplishment getting that that project done uh, successfully um, and then, as often happens, there was there was a there was a change. There was a management change. So the the, the guy who was the president, right, reported to the president and the owner. He left and moved on to 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 do some other stuff. And it was kind of an inflection point where I had to decide. Okay, there's there's myself and you know three other business slash sports guys at at the top of this uh, you know food chain here. Um, and long term, right, where is that? 
you know, what are, what are the possibilities? Where is that going to lead? Uh, and, and at the same time, I had really um, gotten such a broad range of experience by that point. I was very much a generalist because, like I said, the litigation, the employment stuff, the contracts, all the deal work, um, that I had a little bit of an itch in the back of my mind of wanting to kind of get back out there um, and do, you know, do some other stuff um, and get and back. Had, did you, and did you see that, the, you know, because when we spoke last time, I think one of the things that, 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 that your experience, it seems to, you know, up to date, we haven't covered all of it yet, but uh, you seem to have a good handle on, on developments as they're, uh, that are taking place in the market. Um, because of that broad range of experience that you were involved in, did you, was that why you thought, Hey, I can start to see patterns here and opportunities and, uh, you know, different ways to work with people. Did, was I, that? I, yeah. I, what, I guess what I, what I, what I thought was, so it was an opportunity. There was a moment there where, okay, if I'm going to make a change, it makes sense to do it now. Right. And everything was good. Right. Um, I had good relationships there. You know, the people I, I worked with there at the Jets. They're still a client and they're still, you know, you know, friends of mine and relationships and other people that I worked with then who've moved on to other places are also clients. Right. So it was a good, it was a good, you know, starting off point where for me to be able to say, okay, I'm going to instead go back to being uh, a firm lawyer, but really starting up my own, my own boutique. Uh, and I was able to do that because I had the Jets as a client. And the other thing that was happening at the time was the completion of the stadium project. <clears throat> um, and the stadium company, the separate company, which is owned by the Jets and Giants, had started to fill out, but it was still sort of in the nascent stages. And I felt like they, they, there was still help that I could offer them there, which I did. So I kind of hit the ground running with the Jets as a client and the stadium as a, as a client, um, doing a lot of that work, which pretty quickly morphed into the the, the teams, the Jets and the Giants, when they decided to bid on the Super Bowl, which was a bit of a long shot because there had never been a cold weather Super Bowl without a, without a dome because our, our stadium wasn't going to have, you know, covering. You know, they asked me to um, to help lead the process of bidding for the Super Bowl, um, which I which I did, you know, so that was a, a joint, you know, effort uh, by, by both teams. And once it was awarded, uh, they had to form, you have to form a host committee, which is you know, it's a pretty major operation for four or five years. So <clears throat> um, they, they hired a, a president of the host committee who, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, who I, I sort of onboarded and did his employment arrangement and all that and got to know him a little bit. And he was a very senior executive from a big, a big company uh, that he had come from. And, you know, there was going to be a need for legal work there as well. And so it was, it was this perfect opportunity where, the host committee was kind of setting up its offices, uh, which they had gotten as a, a donation. One of the big sponsors was vacating a bunch of property. They still had a few years left on one of their leases. They donated a whole floor on Fifth Avenue. And the guy who had become the president uh, was in the position of saying, OK, I know I'm going to need legal. Um, I don't necessarily have the budget right, to hire someone of, of Andy's experience. So I can either hire someone much more junior and use outside lawyers like Andy or others um, more than I otherwise would have to, or figure something else out. And it, and it worked out well for me because I was just kind of starting this practice that I was able to say, look, I will actually, you know, they asked me to basically be the in-house counsel, um, gave me a corner of the floor to have as my set of offices, and I was able to continue working with other clients as well. So I was both in-house and 
and outside at the same time. Um, and that involved, you know, the whole process of bringing the Super Bowl involved, you know, every potential sports law issue under the sun that you could think of. So and and then so you finished that. And then when do you join Foley? So <clears throat> at the Super Bowl that, you know, like I said, that went on for three or four years. And then I continued uh, after that, continued my my practice and building my practice and you know, activating other contacts. Like I said, some of the people I worked with at the Jets then went over to to Stephen Ross's organization with the Dolphins and Relevant Sports and RC Ventures. And so, you know, I, I established relationships there and kind of built off of my network, uh, just doing my own thing. And at different points, you know, I had other lawyers working with or for me, anywhere between one and three lawyers at a given time, and became very much of a generalist with a focus in the sports and entertainment world. So, you know, there's, there are challenges with that of being essentially a solo or boutique type practitioner, right? At some point you have to scale and you have to grow. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. Um, obviously you could partner up with other people like you, you could just hire people. There's all kinds of financial risks that, you know, that, that, that involves. And another thought, which to me for just for my own, you know, skill set and what I was looking to do was to try to take the whole thing back into a firm. Um, so for a couple of years, I, I thought about that and looked into it. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, one of the, the, the sort of criteria I was thinking about was I thought it would make sense. It made sense to go someplace national, um, with offices all around, because one of the limitations I was, I was finding as a, a New York city sort of small boutique shop was, you know, even though I have contacts all over the country, there's only so much they could or would use me for, given that I'm in New York, right? And not on the ground. And, in I, I, and I say this to people like in, in sports law, and, you know, I'd be interested to get your views on this, but, you know, particularly in the US, but this is the case globally, uh, there's a lot of talk around people who act or say they act or at least present or have some, how can I say, create an association, let's say, with acting in the, in the sports space as lawyers. Right. Um, but really when you break it down as you're looking at those, those are the big NFL teams, NBA teams, NHL teams, um, and now MLS, but their, their legal budgets are just go from like being quite significant to suddenly just going down outside some major litigation. And there's only a few people who are really getting that work. And as you're saying, depending on the location, you might not get it. Depends on whether you can offer full service, you may not get that work. It's quite, it can be, no matter, even with great relationships as you had, one of those contacts, as you're saying, there's a natural limitation point, isn't there? Um, there, there is, there is. And the other, you know, the other limitation point, which is one of the factors that led me to, to Foley, was also the uh, sort of the, the breadth of, of experience and issues. So sometimes things would come up that I would need more bench strength on. Um, whether it was a big litigation that I, you know, I needed to bring, you know, a subject matter expert in, or just to have more bodies, or if it was a deal I was working on that involved some, you know, particularly technical tax issues or something, I'd have to bring in a tax lawyer. And I found, found myself working on these matters and sending business so essentially, to yeah, so, so essentially you become the trusted advisor as such as in the sense people go, hey, Andy's a great guy. We trust him. He understands what we're doing. And then you're getting all the instructions coming in. And then you're right. going, oh, no, I'm having to turn away 
X amount of work potentially if I don't have the expertise. Yeah, so it makes perfect Correct. sense. Or or have that work handled and work with someone. But so it was it, it didn't you know, that was a, a, a little bit of a challenging aspect. It was one of the hurdles I was looking to overcome with the move. Um, and, and you're right throughout that entire time, kind of where I established myself. First of all, it was unique because I did have clients like the Jets and the stadium and then doing work, you know, that led me to other things like doing some work with the Nets and the Dolphins and things like that. You know, very difficult for, you know, outside of particular personal relationships to, you know, to have those types of, 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 of clients. Um, so it was, uh, that, that was a benefit to me. Uh, but when I started thinking about those, those few issues, as well as the fact that, you know, there's, there's ups and downs in like in any, you know, anyone who's running their own business, you have some years that are better and some years that are less. So there's a consistency aspect as well. So, um, all of those things, uh, you know, after a bunch of research and getting to, to know people led me, led me to Foley, uh, because for, for a number of reasons, first of all, it's, it's a national firm. It's a, you know, it's a big, uh, we have 1100 lawyers, 20, I think 25 or how many offices? 20, 20 plus offices. <laughs> 20 plus offices, right? There's so there's either there's either like 24 in the U.S. and three international, or some combination of that. I I always get it mixed up because there's we have offices in Mexico City, uh, Tokyo, and um, Brussels. I think is the other one, and then but where it's literally got the U.S. covered in a way that I think is is actually more uh, balanced than. Perhaps any other firm, I, you know, I haven't like done a comparison, but we have five offices in California, you know, we have Boston, New York, DC, five offices in Florida, and the whole middle of the country is is blanket. And I think there's three offices in Texas. We've got the headquarters in Milwaukee. We've got Madison, Chicago, Denver. Um, you know, it's it's really and, it's and, really and again, given your given your contacts across the country, that starts to make a lot of sense, right? Because that starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah, That's yeah. right. And now, and then the other thing is the New York office um, is one of the small, well, not small, it's, it's not a huge office by law firm standards, right? I think we have 40 lawyers in New York across various disciplines. And for me, that was attractive because I'm coming from sort of a small place. So it, it the actual office, although I joined five days before COVID, so <laughs> the integration <laughs> was a little different than what I expected it to be. But the idea was that the that particular office had a little bit of a mid-size feel to it, right? So an easier transition for me personally. Yeah, it's more, inti more intimate. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. More, more intimate, right. And, and the other thing is that uh, because the headquarters of the firm is in Milwaukee, not New York, like many of the other, many of the big, you know, firms that, that have significant sports law practices, there's kind of a Midwestern sensibility to it that made sense for me from a business perspective and from a, a billing perspective, right? Because, you know, my contemporaries at the big firms, like the one I started with, are, you know, billing several hundred dollars more than, than me for maybe even when I was on my own, maybe even double. And part of my sort of value proposition was, look, you're getting the same experience that you would get at these big firms for, you know, a much, much lower price. And the, 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 the point is just fully happen. Look, not that it's cheap, right? We all know anything legal. I mean, the, the, you know, it's, it's, I huge. call it a luxury brand item almost. Yeah. Like yeah. Listen, pricing, right? Big business, 
you know, Foley is an AMLA 100 firm, you know, 1100 lawyers. But um, I don't know. I just felt like there was there was a willingness to, you know, allow me to come in a way that would not immediately present my clients with stick shock. Um, yeah, well, I can see that the how I would maybe it's probably easier for me to describe it maybe than yourself maybe and you can tell me if this is right having been in house yourself and then being obviously having your own firm you can have much more control over the pricing to be sure. more aligned let's say to the value that you deliver you believe you're delivering for a client and and right. you know we're definitely seeing that that's a trend as well that's taking place in the sense of the people having a bit more control over that and the bigger the firm the less typically the less control there is right you're being you know, forced to do certain things. And so, um, because it, you know, they've got a business to run, right? And right. very expensive fee and has to pay out. Um, right. so that, that makes, again, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and again, you I do know, think that one, one other factor just to touch on as before I leave that, that topic was, you know, and perhaps one of the most significant ones is that the, you know, my, my practice had developed in the sports media and entertainment space. I did, I did everything, right. It was very much our generalist, but a lot of it in that space, and in a lot of ways, acting as outside general counsel as trusted advisor, as opposed to just being a litigator or just being a you know an employment lawyer or whatever. Um, the sports and entertainment group at Foley was also very well rounded, spread out across the firm, a lot of really re- relevant experience, and it you know it was just a place that I and my practice fit really well. And going back full circle to what we talked about at the beginning, a lot of people. Um, who had previously been in-house lawyers at, at leagues and teams, um, you know, whether it's the NBA or different teams in, in hockey, uh, you know, was baseball, you know, there's a, there's, there's I'm trying to think, I couldn't even count on my fingers, but there's a real, it's well-established that that model is part of the DNA of this particular group. And it makes a lot of sense because we, I, and we, have, when we're talking to clients, we have sat in their chair. And they and they know that. So they know we understand, you know, a, a lot of lawyers, partners at big firms have been at those firms, you know, and they're smart and they're great. and They have a lot of experience. But if they haven't actually sat in that chair, it's it, it brings a little bit of a different way of thinking to, to you can be a bit more. Yeah, I know what you're saying that, yeah. again, a great person is a great person and a great lawyer. And it's not to, you know, this doesn't you know, being talking about something that you bring is not being uh, uh, disparaging of others, right? They bring, you know, something slightly different. Um, but no doubt there is that kind of, you know, connectivity in terms of the use of language and how you apply it, um, you know, and you can understand maybe strategically, I would imagine, you know, a bit further down the chain where there might be problems, although... Correct. You're, anticipating, you know, you're able to anticipate things, I think, in a more, in a way that is more sensitive to the, the client's needs. And... and um, then so so you joined just before for lockdown and that makes a lot of sense in terms of and again I, th- I think it's a I'm not sure if you've seen this but is your sense that again it's a more competitive marketplace because when I started law in sport um, you know obviously the SLA was well established and there was a lot of lawyers but it wasn't as big I think the SLA at the time when I started law in sport was maybe 300 people the con- annual conference was like 300 people maybe I think and then it boomed up to 700 or 800 um before just before covid um but the there is more appetite to say from firms to do sports work than there was you know say again just 10 even 20 years ago and because of that then having some sort of um 
you know, having in-house expertise, people have been there, done it, starts to become much more important than when it was before. Let's say uh, earlier on, you just need to be the legal expert. Whereas now it's like, well, we can now get the legal expertise, but we also need those people with, as you're saying, with those sensitivities who can foresee it, who can relate to us, can can move things along a little bit quicker. Um, is that something that you think is has has been a trend? I I, I do. Uh, it is a very competitive landscape, right? And you, you do have, and it's difficult to break into, right? Which is why, and 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 because the industry has grown so much, there's there's bigger transactions, there's more significant litigation. You know, there's there there are more and more varied legal needs. Uh, but like I said at the beginning, sports law, you know, I've spoken about this many times. It's not, you know, it could it, you could be talking about just contract issues. You could be talking about a lot of intellectual property issues right between copyright, trademark, you know, sponsorship deals are really trademark licenses, you know, uh, with with a lot of other things attached to them. Right. But as I said before, you have real estate issues. When you get into the higher levels, at the ownership levels, if you're talking about team sales and acquisitions, you have a lot of tax issues. You could even have estate planning issues in terms of how you structure ownership and things like that. And a lot of professional sports teams are are they're they're moving into other businesses too. You have they you know most of the ones that are going to be the most profitable are going to have a stadium that they're managing, which involves not just their games but also concerts and and other events and things like that uh, a lot of the, them a lot of them are moving into esports and getting into that space or um i don't know you know the fantasy sports aspects there's there are there are any number of of things that that come up well we're stopping the podcast there because the conversation which was fascinating and thoroughly enjoyable went on for some time the second half of the podcast discusses or well, Andy discusses what he considers to be the future trends in sports media sports entertainment including nfts uh, over the top media broadcast amongst other general trends that he's seeing from an in-house former in-house counsel perspective but also now in private practice so thank you very much for tuning in i hope you enjoyed it and if you did of course please do tell people about it that's how we uh, build our brand that's how we build our community uh, is something that we really appreciate so if you do enjoy it please do share it with other people but also tell us um had some really nice messages from people over the last few weeks and it is deeply appreciated likewise reach out to andy if you've enjoyed the conversation as well and other than that remember for all your latest sports law information updates on legal developments and issues that are taking place in the sports law sector go to lawinsport.com for us on itunes twitter soundcloud linkedin facebook and of course on spotify itunes and other good podcast uh, service providers and whatever time of day it is wherever you are in the world i hope you have a wonderful day and thank you so much for tuning in mm-hmm.